The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you another Thursday afternoon. Love hearing from you and appreciate Dean from Buffalo calling in on our last segment. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. And today, for the first time, we are streaming live on Facebook Live. So go ahead and join in. Yeah, we're trying to do new things here. Always trying to bring you the best at the Leslie on the Leslie Marshall show. Um, I am such an Olympics nerd. Okay, let me just stop, <laughs> like, start the conversation there. Um, actually, Think Progress, which is um, kind of connected to the Center for American Progress, they had a whole thing about there is something called the, like, Olympic brain and, like, how we all get, like, super, like, ah, USA, USA. Um, and I'm definitely that person. Uh, I actually have to start with, before we even get into this segment, which is very important and thoughtful and very scholarly, but I have to talk about medal count. Because because the USA is crushing it. Uh, the United States leading the medal count, 32. China, 25. Japan, 18. Australia, 14. South Korea, 11. And the big events this evening, swimming, gymnastics, and archery. Um, and since I think I'm Katniss Everdeen from Hunger Games, I'm super excited about that one too. But in studio today, super excited because I have both my friend and colleague who does amazing work all the time. We're talking about um, something that I think, you know, we've had one of the segments on before, but now that we're here, we're in Brazil. Well, not the show today, but I would like to be. <laughs> um, but we're in Brazil for the Olympics, um, but not even just talking about the Olympics here in the United States. We've started to see more and more cases. And what am I talking about? Zika. So we know Congress left town without putting forth the money. Um, we've seen cases here in Maryland. For those who don't know, right now we're coming to you live at Washington, D.C., but we've seen more cases in Maryland and Florida. Um, and and we seem like we don't have quite yet the political will to deal with this before things get out of control. And so in studio with me is none other than Dr. Jamila Taylor, who is the senior fellow for women's health here at the Center for American Progress. If you want to follow her on Twitter, you can do so at Dr. D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-0-9. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Okay, so kind of give us an an idea about kind of what's happening, where we are, what's the latest state of play on Zika? Well, you know, as you said in your introductory remarks, we are still unfortunately in a situation where we don't have funding that has been appropriated um, as Congress was supposed to do before they left um, for August recess. Um, and in the midst of that, you know, where we sit here waiting, um, you know, for those fundings to 
to be allocated, we continue to see an increase in Zika cases. Um, so right now in the United States, we have over 7,000 cases. Wow. Um, and that includes the 7,000 cases 7, in the U.S.? In the U.S. Wow. And that includes the United States as well as the U.S. territories. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost 1,000 pregnant women um, are infected. Mm. Um, you know, so the situation with Zika is not getting any better. It's, in fact, getting worse. Um And we are in urgent need of resources to help deal with the issue. I think initially when the president, um, you know, requested the funding back in February, um, the purpose of, of, you know, the request was really to get ahead of Zika Mm -hmm. virus. And um, because Congress essentially did not do their job, you know, here we are seeing an increase in cases. I just got an attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Um, I think I was aware that there were kind of um, increased numbers more than we had been hearing writ large. But when you said a thousand pregnant women Mm -hmm. here in the United States infected with Zika and Congress who repeatedly we tell them to do your job, whether we're talking about a Supreme Court nomination or here in Zika. I mean, they literally left town. There's very few things that Congress does. As you all know, and for some of our newer listeners, I spent much of my career on Capitol Hill uh, working in the Senate, working in the House. And there's a great responsibility when you are a public servant elected to represent people. Mm -hmm. One of them is to deal with money and how you give out resources to different communities. And usually we're able to kind of get the will together to do something when it comes to kind of disease or sickness or natural disasters. What happened here with Zika? Why? I mean, there's a lot of reasons that Congress gets on my nerves, but why in this instance did you see like there was no movement? Well, I mean, to be honest, there was so much political wrangling around the issue. I Mm. mean, you know, one of the I think interesting things about Zika is that, um, you know, it is primarily transmitted through infected mosquitoes, but it can also be transmitted, you know, from pregnant women, mm-hmm. woman to, you know, her fetus, and then as well as sexually transmitted. So I think in part, you know, the issue has come politicized. Um, you know, one because of the, again, we're talking about women and because lady we're parts. talking about women and lady parts. You know, Zika <laughs> is a women's health <laughs> issue. Um, you know, and the last proposal, you know, that was introduced on the Hill or was negotiated um, included some poison pills, basically, that would restrict Zika funding from being used to address, you know, the issue among women. So, this you is know, crazy. Right. So if you are just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm here in studio with Jamila Taylor. She's the senior fellow for women's health here at the Center for American Progress. She tweets at Dr. Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R-0-9. So, you know, I, I led the, the, the segment with talking a little bit about the Olympics. And, you know, one of the reasons that reminded me that we needed to kind of do a segment on this is because there was this big concern. There were like a million people who were heading to Brazil. Um, you know, there was this great concern about tourists going there and coming back and our Olympic athletes. Um, but there doesn't seem to have been this kind of widespread infection the way that we kind of were afraid of. Why? 
did Brazil kind of get ahead of it more so than we than even we here the United States have? No, I mean Brazil is actually in a more dire situation when mm. it comes to Zika. Um, in that country, we know that um, Zika is actually responsible for over 400, 4,000, I'm sorry, cases of microcephaly in Brazil. And mm. so microcephaly is the um, birth defect um, that mm. can be caused in pregnant women in their pregnancies um, if they contract the Zika virus. And so um, Brazil has had a real issue with Zika there. I think that, um, you know, at this point, we've seen it sort of fall you know, the, all the successes of the Olympics and, right, right, right. you know, all of the celebrity and, and you mm-hmm. know, the fun around the Olympics has sort of taken the precedent focus, over the that. precedent right. over yeah. the issue. Mm-hmm. But it's still very much an issue. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Zika can also be transmitted sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, so for folks that are in Brazil or mm-hmm. are in Rio, mm-hmm. um, you know, they should definitely be using condoms, you mm-hmm. know, practicing safe sex, but mm-hmm. also making sure that they have their, you know, mosquito repellent as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from a public health perspective, it's still very much an issue and we want people to enjoy themselves and, and have mm-hmm. a good time in Rio, but also be mindful of, Kind of you know, the context and the surroundings. Right. Prevention yeah. Yeah. is key. Yeah. So when we come back from break, one of the things that I really want to kind of get into is how, you know, we did a segment earlier in the year about ways that we can protect ourselves. Um, We hear that, you know, um, states like Puerto Rico are really struggling. um, But what does the what would the funding actually do? So if Congress does its job and finally gets it together, what would that mean for so many of our communities? You're listening to Michelle Jawando. This is the Leslie Marshall Show in studio with Dr. Jamila Taylor. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always good to be with you. And I want to give a special shout out to members of the revolution. Uh, WPEK 880 AM in Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show family. New affiliate joining our um, listeners here. Um, I have a special love for North Carolina because I went to law school there. So you often hear me with a random amount of strange love and admiration for that state. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that... uh, uh, we have going on right now in studio is Dr. Jamila Taylor. She is senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress for our women's health team. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Dr. D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-09. So we're having a conversation about Zika and um and kind of what we haven't done and what we need to do. So right before the break, you know, I asked, listen, Congress left town. 
we've heard things in the news. You even heard uh, Senator Marco Rubio recently come out and say, Congress, you guys need to come back in town, which is surprising to hear this from him. But um, you need to come back in town and kind of appropriate some money so we can address this crisis in the state of Florida. What would the money actually do? So, you know, I will say that once we have a bill and, um, you know, it's going to be up to the appropriators to to decide, you know, what the funding would actually go to. But I can tell you what the president would like it to go to or the administration. And so some of the areas included in the president's proposal include mosquito control, um, you know, so spraying, repellent, and so forth and so on in communities impacted. Um, also research and development. There's still a lot that we don't know about Zika virus and transmission. And so we need more funding in that area to, you know, also develop a vaccine, for instance. Um, some of the funding would also go to testing, um, making sure that people have access to testing and that um, also that their insurance covers it. I think that's another important piece of that. Um, and so those are sort of the three buckets of areas. Um, there was also some general language in the president's proposal that would support um, access to services for low-income pregnant women. Um, and I would argue that the funding should also go to support access to family planning services, including contraception, mm. um, to prevent, to help prevent um, any mother-to-child transmission as well as sexual transmission of Zika. So one of the things that I want to highlight for those who don't know, um, you recently published an interesting infographic here. Mm -hmm. And I just want to bring out this stat for people. Um, as of July 19th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 4,222 people have been diagnosed with Zika virus in the U.S. and territories. Um, recently, you just gave the stat that almost 1,000 pregnant women. So if you are pregnant right now, now and you've contracted the Zika virus, is it definite that you would contract, in, what is it, encephalitis? <coughs> microcephaly. Wanna, microcephaly. Is it definite that you then contract that disease? Mm -hmm. Is that? No, it's okay. not definite. I mean, okay. so, so microcephaly, again, is a birth defect um, mm -hmm. that would impact um, a woman, could impact a woman who tests positive for Zika, could impact her pregnancy, um, her fetus. And basically, um, researchers have estimated that, you know, a pregnant woman who tests positive for Zika, um, you know, her fetus has the chance of, you know, um, developing microcephaly between 1 and 30 percent. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a large <laughs> yeah. range. Um, and that's why it's so important for, for um pregnant women to make sure that they're seeing, you know, their um, provider, mm -hmm. their medical provider mm -hmm. regularly, um, that they have access to testing. Um, you know, and another thing to mention is that microcephaly, right now, the only way um, for us to, um, you know, assess a pregnancy to see if it is, um, if the fetus does have microcephaly is through ultrasound, and then mm. it doesn't show up until about 21 weeks oh, wow. um, gestation. So it's really important for women to be going to the doctor and mm -hmm. to, to make sure that they're getting those tests. And I think even for that piece, I mean, there are some real implications for low-income women who yeah. may not be going to the doctor regularly. Or so if you live in a rural community. If you live in a rural area, so, so access yeah. issues. 
So I think another piece of, you know, any response efforts is also making sure that information um, is available and that it's getting out to the communities that could be most heavily affected. Um, one of the things that came out of some conversations that I've had recently, particularly with um, you know, organizations servicing the Latino community is making sure that information about Zika is translated into Spanish. Spanish. Wow, exactly. that's like so basic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we look at Miami yeah, and, yeah. you know, all of the new cases we're seeing in Florida. I mean, we're, we're still trying to get a sense of the epidemic there, but mm -hmm. I think you know, there there have to be some implications for Spanish-speaking communities, for sure. And so, for families, you know, we're we're we are in the middle. If you are fortunate enough to have access and the opportunity to take vacation, and you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to do a whole separate segment about how you, not everybody even has access to vacation. So we're definitely privileged those of us who have that chance. Um, what do you tell people to do to prepare? Um, prepare for summer vacation when they're out hiking when you're at the beach um, what do families do what do what does everybody do to really protect themselves well I think it's important you mentioned the privilege piece because mm -hmm. even some of the things that folks maybe listen to, listening to this can think oh well I can go to Target and buy mm -hmm. you know bug spray for my kids and make sure they have it on but that even is a privilege in and of itself being mm -hmm. able to purchase these things mm -hmm. um, so I do want to put that out there there are a whole set of implications for low-income families mm -hmm. that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on so mm -hmm. that's just a plug and maybe we can have a follow-up conversation about I, that I guess, <laughs> guess what I'm um, going to talk about <laughs> absolutely but in terms of what you can do I mean definitely you know if you're taking your families out on vacation make sure that you have um, you know, insect repellent, um, particularly there's an off deep woods version that mm -hmm. is said to protect against Zika virus or okay. protect against mosquitoes that are infected um, with Zika. So make sure you have that, um, you know, try to, you know, keep protective clothing on. Right. Um, you know, and just be mindful of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. And I mean, another thing to mention with Zika is that most people are asymptomatic. Um, mm. You know, so it's just very important to be mindful. And again, you know, if you are going on vacation and having a good time, you know, Zika can also be transmitted sexually. So make sure you, um, you know, have condoms with you. And, and young women should make sure that they're also, you know, protecting themselves against unplanned pregnancy. I think that's another important piece, too. Well, you know, um, as we get ready to close this segment, it, it reminds me of the fact that while we may simply think, oh, it's just a matter of going to pick up some bug spray right um, there are a lot of people who don't have either the the means to do that if they're deciding between food and bug spray right you're gonna go food um, so there is also kind of a broader public health question about mm -hmm. what more we can be doing in our communities it is always wonderful to have you in studio always glad to um, be here. I have a whole nother segment just because of yes. you so super excited you have been listening to Dr. Jamila Taylor um, senior fellow for Women's Health at the Center for American Progress. This is Michelle Jawando in studio with you on another Thursday. We'll be right back after the break talking about the Baltimore DOJ report. Make sure you tune right back in. We'll be right back after this break. And now the You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 8886-LESLIE. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. 
There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate And welcome back. Really, what is going on? This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, always great to be with you. If you want to join in the conversation, and I'm sure with our next segment, you will. You can go ahead and give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can find out find us for the first time ever on Facebook. Facebook Live. Woohoo! Uh, www.facebook.com forward slash the Leslie Marshall show or find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall at Michelle Jawando. So I want to get right into it because I have some really amazing guests joining me for the next segment. Um, some old friends, some newer ones, but all together, a really um, great group of guests. And we're talking, ladies and gentlemen, about the Department of Justice probe of the Baltimore Police Department. I think many of you saw yesterday that the Justice uh, Justice Department investigation found that the Baltimore Police Department had been engaging in unconstitutional practices that led to disproportionate rate of stops, searches, and arrests of African Americans and excessive use of force against juveniles, people with mental and mental health disabilities. I think what was so damning is that the report, 160 three pages in total really both in some ways spoke to concerns that communities who have been on the ground for years had been sharing and now a department of justice report only affirmed that so joining me for this conversation um an old friend um we went to the same law school so doing amazing things university of north carolina today um but none other than kanya bennett she is legislative counsel at the aclu here in washington dc really focusing on criminal justice issues as well as a host of others kanya bennett welcome to the show thank you michelle um we're also joined by nguzi ndulawe who is the senior director of criminal justice programs at the naacp nguzi welcome to the show Thank you so much. And last, but definitely not least, is someone who has been out in the community working on these issues and is really one of the leaders, one of the great leaders of Baltimore right now, none other than Councilman Nick Mosby, who you can find on Twitter at Nick, N-I-C-K underscore Mosby, M-O-S-B-Y. Nick, welcome to the show. Michelle, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. So, Councilman, I actually want to just start with you because I can only imagine what the last 48 hours um, has been for you, um, both as a community leader, someone who you and your wife raising your beautiful family there, um, both incredibly involved in the community. But when you heard and when this uh, report was first leaked, and then yesterday, the press conference and just the affirmation of so many horrible complaints. What was your first reaction? Well, you know, being born and raised in Baltimore, you know, product of uh, the city, I've seen the best, I've seen the worst side of the city. So 
uh, to be honest with you, uh, not um, nothing uh, from a uh, qualitative perspective uh, surprised me. Um, what I was shocked at is the, the sheer numbers. I mean, mm. you know, one thing when you when you talk about different stops and you talk about different situations, for me growing up, even me being a councilman, I've heard the stories, I've seen the stories, I've been part of the stories time and time again. But then when you look at it at from an aggregate perspective, the magnitude of which uh, it's happened, you really understand and know the frustration the anger, the resentment that you have uh, in certain communities, specifically communities of color. And then when you try to extrapolate that out and you look at the residual impact mm. uh, that has caused for, for decades, um, you know, it really provides, I guess, the foundation of us, one, being accountable for what has taken place and hopefully developing, um, you know, the next steps of trying to come out of this. The one thing that I've continued to tell residents and constituents in my district is this is not just a report or study that's released. This ultimately is going to be drilled down into a federal consent decree. Mm-hmm. It's going to be literally uh, a contract with real measurables and key indicators uh, to ensure uh, that um, Baltimore City Police Department and the mayor and city council directly um, uh, 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 will you know, do the systemic uh, things to try to change uh, what's currently happening. And Kanye, I know that this is something that we have all been kind of waiting with bated breath. Um, you know, actually, the assistant attorney general came from your organization, the ACLU, Vanita Gupta, who spoke at the press conference so eloquently about the need to have major systemic reforms. What what was your reaction? And my sense that I got is you see the leadership of the city saying we know we have major problems, but do you think that this is something that we're going to see get all the way down to the rank and file? In terms of an acknowledgement that there are real issues, I certainly hope that this message trickles all the way down to rank and files. Obviously, those are the folks on the ground Mm -hmm. engaging with communities day to day. We certainly hope that there is a recognition, not that there are just bad apples, mm-hmm. but that there is a bad culture right. and that this culture needs to change. So certainly mm. the ACLU of Maryland long ago engaged in litigation to address some of these practices. Mm-hmm. We have my office, the Washington Legislative Office, that is engaged in federal advocacy in this space to make sure that there are reforms not just in Baltimore, but throughout the country. I mean, certainly we are seeing, given the great work you acknowledged, Vanita Gupta, and certainly we should lift her up. She's doing a tremendous job there with very limited resources. We are seeing that it's, again, not just Baltimore, but so many cities that Mm -hmm. need to have systemic reform in the policing space. Mm -hmm. And Ngozi, I think many people may not be aware that the National Office for the NAACP is actually in Baltimore. Um, And so when you talk about these issues is not just looking at a national um, kind of federal policy, but you're looking at it because this is where um, your organization is every single day on the ground experiencing these issues. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that the this report is very important for the people of Baltimore, just um, as was said earlier about just recognizing the sheer scope of the problem with the police here. Um, and I, I do think that Baltimore is standing and is 
as an example of what is going on um, throughout the country. So we're hoping that this can be a turning point for the city of Baltimore, but also for the entire country to really um, have a realistic view of, of what some of the actual violations of people's rights are occurring on a daily basis. Um, and I think that one of the people that I hope that get this message strongly is also the courts and seeing mm-hmm. when we talk about things like consent searches and people who um, people's interaction with the police, I think we need to make sure that we know the true context of those interactions. And that true context is in a very coercive and um, environment in which people know that there is no true accountability uh, for the violation of their rights. There's not really uh, consent to be had in that situation. That's right. So, you know, Councilman, I want to turn back to you because I think you you mentioned at the top of the segment that many of your constituents are coming to you saying, look, we've been saying this forever. What's going to be different here? I mean, how do you talk to a community who's literally been under siege and now they have a report to affirm that? But how do you kind of both inspire them and tell them, listen, we're going to do something because now we have this document to help us move forward? Well, I mean, it's kind of back to the acknowledgement and accountability. And you're exactly right. I mean, for folks that have been talking about these things for decades um, and frustrated and, um, you know, kind of like um, subjected to being kind of just painted into this corner of no one's listening to them. It's the same old stuff. This is just policing. This is kind of life. And this is, you know, the normalization of policing in a place like Baltimore City. Um, I think they don't even feel relieved. Um, They don't Mm. even feel... Uh, that the report really means anything because at the end of the day, it's what they've been screaming for so long. What I tell them, again, is the fact that, you know, this is not just a report that is kind of a white paper that's put on somebody's desk, but this is something that's going to be evaluated and it's going to be basically signed through the court that the city of Baltimore will have to change and the implications from a budgetary perspective will have to be put in place. Uh, and again, there will be measurables that will be there. I think, um, you know, what was said earlier uh, is the scary thing is not what you read about that took place in Baltimore or Cleveland or Ferguson, but it's the consistency of all of these different places. Mm. And literally, if DOJ went into any urban area in America, I promise you the reports look the same and will be the same over and over and over again. So the real context is, you know, from a United States perspective and ensuring that we're providing a fair and just and impartial criminal justice system for all Americans is how do we get away from needing to do a report in the hundreds and hundreds of cities? How do we develop the policies? Um, How do we develop uh, the accountability? How do we develop the structural uh, things that should be in place to ensure that we don't have to do a report to uncover these things, that we are starting to just kind of grow out of this, knowing where we currently are currently in America right now. That's right. And and, and Ngozi, part of your work obviously includes litigation, and you see that as a, as a means to kind of fix and work on some of these changes. But do we really have to litigate this every single time? Like, how many times do we have to see this in courts for us to do something? And I think that that's the issue, is that the, the DOJ is not going to be in every single um, police department to do the kind of exhaustive, extensive work that they did to uncover all of 
these issues. So um, for the NAACP, one of the things that is very important for us is that we have um, members, we have, you know, more than 2,000 local units throughout the country that we are uh, asking our units to engage with their uh, local and state officials to actually do this work on the ground. Now, um, I that is a heavy burden to bear, right? It, it, we should uh, not need to do the, the work of the police as far as making sure that they are um, accountable, making sure that they have uh, appropriate policies together. But I think as far as that um, community involvement and that civilian oversight, we are working in each of our with each of our local units to make sure that we are saying, okay, where is the data on the stops? What are your um, comprehensive standards about the use of force? We want to make sure that this is not being uh, used in a discriminatory way. So I think we see very much our uh, this our role personally to um, hold our police departments accountable wherever we're at. So, so Kanye, I want to turn back to you because you mentioned that, you know, your federal office is talking about criminal justice reform writ large, but the policing conversation isn't necessarily where we see a lot of the federal policy. Much of it, which is as incredibly important, it has been around sentencing, um, it has been about um, reform, but the policing conversation still seems to be one that we struggle with in this country. That's exactly right. So we have been meeting with members really since Ferguson, since my time at the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office on policing. And certainly as criminal justice reform, I think has really been described as sentencing reform, we are making sure that members of Congress know that criminal justice reform, comprehensive reform, must include policing. We must take a look at the front end of the system, the very front end of the system, and figure out why it is we have so many people, often people of color, in our jails, in our prisons. So Mm -hmm. yes, we continue to stress to members that we need to get reform in this space. And certainly there are dozens and dozens of proposals out there. That's right. And we have seen that the political will is just not there. We know that law enforcement and the unions are a very vocal constituency Mm. and that there is opposition to even some of the most elementary reforms that we need to see. Take data collection, for example. Data is so easy, and it's certainly something that I think advocates members of the community and law enforcement, too, Mm -hmm. will want to see to really understand what the state of policing looks like in this country. And how we fix these problems. Right. And so... As you said, at every turn, there are obstacles, though. The p- political will is just not there, and we're working to change that. Um, really quickly, I want to bring in my friend Michael from the Bronx. Uh, Michael, we're, we're almost at the end of the segment, but let me have your comment really quickly, and thanks so much. Hi, can you hear me? Hey, Michael, how you doing? All right, thanks so much for taking my call. It's my contention, and I'm very strong about this, that there needs to be a penalty of consequences against those, and I'm aiming towards some of the police unions and even politicians that are plaguing and corrupting police to and to behave in the ways that we've been seeing, and at the same time, been penalizing the good cops for speaking up 
mm-hmm. terminating them, or even retaliating against them by um, planting evidence to try to get them on criminal charges. I mean, how the hell is it that you're rewarding people for doing evil and you're penalizing people for doing good? Thank that you. is totally backwards. No, Michael, I, I always appreciate you and your passion. Councilman Mosby, we're getting ready to close the segment, but I want to leave you with the last minute. Where do we go from here? I think that we need, you know, universal, um, strong, transformative reform of our criminal justice system from beginning to end throughout this entire country. Uh, again, the stuff that folks have been screaming about and talking about for so, so long has been exposed not just through these federal consent decrees, but because of technology and what we've seen is related to interactions and stops with our citizens. Uh, and I think that it's a really unique time for America to take a step back, be accountable for the wrong that has been provided on communities of color, and develop you know very strong, transformative changes that puts us in an trajectory. Well, I thank my three guests for helping to make that change happen. Kanye Bennett, ACLU, Ngozi Ndule from NAACP, and Councilman Nick Mosby. Thanks so much for joining the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. I'll be right back after the break talking family childhood policy. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show.